Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to today's edition of the Baseball America College podcast. I'm Teddy Cahill. Joining me as always is Joe Healy. And later in the program, uh, we'll be joined by Mickey Willard of the High Point Thomasville High Toms. We're going to talk a little summer baseball, a little Coastal Plains League with, with, uh, with Mickey. Uh, but we got plenty to, uh, to discuss beyond that, um, you know, just kind of a, a smorgasbord of topics here today for, uh, for me and Joe as, as we continue our, our podcast here through uh, the doldrums of, of July. Uh, traditionally, not, not necessarily the, uh, the busiest time on the college baseball calendar, although this would be about the time that the Cape Cod League All-Star Game and many other uh, summer ball All-Star Games would be going on in a, in a normal summer. They would have probably taken place over the last week, but uh, we we soldier on uh, re- regardless, Joe, and uh, you know we've got we've got plenty of stuff to talk about d- despite all of the uh, various things that aren't going on in college baseball these days. Yeah, indeed, and uh, you know we we just had Major League Baseball come back into our lives, which kind of even though you and I don't cover that day to day, kind of gives uh, life a certain rhythm that we're used to having, if if nothing else, even if it is a little bit little bit strange although I did learn that much in the same way that players have to get back into game shape like I kind of have to get back into game shape just because I realized last night as we record this on Friday last night there uh, you know there was an early game and a late game early game Yankees and Nationals ends up going into a rain delay and eventually getting called and then you know out here on the east coast Dodgers Giants starts at 10 p.m. and it just kind of hit me like a ton of bricks like if I wanted to watch this entire game that means I have to stay up like three hours and change longer than right now when I'm already yawning on the couch. Uh, and so there's, there is a little bit of like getting back into that, that mode where you've got sporting events in prime time that you may have to prepare to stay up late for. And I believe that the term the kids use is washed in terms of being able to stay up late and uh, you know, hang like that. And it's uh, I guess it's a muscle. You have to, you have to work it out just like any other muscle, you know, during the college season, you and I have no problem because the job calls for it staying up you know, all hours of the night and riding into the night and, and coming back from games late. But, uh, you know, we haven't really had that in a while. So it's it's going to be an adjustment. And I learned a little bit the hard way uh, trying to watch baseball on opening night. So you were not watching the late game in the MLS's back tournament? I was not. You know what I find funny about the MLS? Funny, maybe not the right word, although a little bit humorous perhaps, <laughs> is I think they're finding out why um, – Typically, sporting events outdoors in the summer in Central Florida is not a great idea. Every time I turn on one of those MLS games, and I've, I've watched a little bit here and there, I would say, you know, when they first kicked that thing off, I watched a couple matches all the way through. Uh, since then, I'll watch you know, 15 minutes here, 20 minutes there, kind of in between things. And every time I watch those matches, like, their jerseys are literally stuck to their bodies as if they just took a shower in their in their, or their, their kits, I guess, would be the, uh, the 
proper football terminology there, but it, it, it's just, I know, and I know they're staggering games. They, they do games at like 9 a.m. and then do games at like 9 p.m. to try to avoid the sun, which is smart, but it's just, it's humid. Like in Central Florida in July, and I just, I feel for them because that just seems so miserable. Just having your, your jersey top just stuck to your body like that for, for however long you're going to be out there uh, the rest of the game. Um, so that, that's kind of the extent of my knowledge of MLS is they all look really, really tired and sweaty. Yeah, that uh, Orlando outside in July, it's a, it's a tough assignment uh, and, you know, kind of a, a reminder of, you know, what the World Cup in 2026 is, is going to look like potentially. But as much as I would like to turn this into a, a soccer podcast, uh, I don't think that's what y'all are here for. Um, yeah, so, yeah, the, the return of, of MLB – does give kind of a new life to, or breathe new life into to the baseball season. Uh, obviously, for, for MLB fans, that this is you know, the start of the, the season. But you're listening to a college podcast, so you know you've already had a season start, get halted, and then the whole summer season, uh, you know, start again. So I, I kind of struggle with getting that excited about it being opening day. Like I get that, you know, we can watch. Major League Baseball, and that that is exciting on its own. Uh, but the the idea that baseball is back, like I don't know, I've we didn't watch. I've, I've watched plenty of baseball already this season, and you know, guys are are, are playing this summer. But to have the big leagues back is uh, is still an exciting thing. And you know, there's some exciting college baseball components of that. You know, Brady Singer is making his debut, 2018 Player of the Year. Um, by the time you guys listen to this, he will have debuted for the, the Royals over the weekend. Uh, so that's, uh, that's really cool to see, see him get to the big leagues and, and, you know, see what he does there. And, um, you know, just seeing guys like that, uh, you know, have, have their, their moment uh, to debut is, uh, you know, that, that's always fun and, you know, unfortunate that it, it'll be happening in kind of a weird environment, but uh, still very cool that it happened. Just like it was cool that, you know, Spencer Torkelson walked right out of the draft uh, to, um, you know, to, to summer camp with, with the Tigers and, and plenty of other first round picks uh, did the same thing. So uh, lots of, of, you know, tangential storylines to college baseball with the big leagues being back. And also just, you know, everyone around college baseball, uh, you know, can get excited about watching the big leagues. And, and that's something that, you know, all the coaches are doing and they want all their players to be doing, especially if they aren't playing this summer, you know, watch, watch what the best guys are, are doing and, and learn from them. And, um, you know, plenty of times we talk to players and, and, and we hear about the ways in which they have learned from, from watching the big leagues. Yeah. It's, it's also a boon having big league baseball back is also a boon for college SIDs. Uh, we hear you we see SIDs. I know it's been a tough spring and summer in terms of content. Like I, I get it, but having, having big league baseball back makes it a little bit easier. You have those, the graphics with the, the players who are making big league debuts or X number of players in the big leagues. And uh, so all, for all of our friends who are in that profession, I, I you know, I say this without a, without even the slightest bit of snark, uh, we see you and we are happy that, that you have found something to, to put on social media in terms of content, because that could not have been an easy thing to have to, to wade through a spring without baseball and, and now a summer with delayed baseball. And uh, there's only, only so many summer ball updates you can do on your, on your current players. So I'm glad that, that they've been given a little something else to be able to, uh, to post about. 
in, in what it otherwise could not have been an easy spring and summer to deal with. Absolutely. And if you, uh, if you are interested in, in the return of, of big league baseball, I know that, um, you know, Kyle and, and Matt and, you know, others have, have covered it uh, on the podcast, you know, look around in, in the Baseball America podcast feed on your favorite podcasting app, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you're listening to podcasts. Uh, there, there are, you know, podcasts to, to tell you about this big league season and plenty of content over at BaseballAmerica.com. Uh, to uh, to get you ready for it uh, in all of its various idiosyncrasies uh, in, in what is you know shaping up to be um, a singular hopefully summer of uh, of baseball and and a uh, a new postseason format as well so check all of that out uh, here on the Baseball America College podcast we are going to get to our interview uh, with High Point Thomasville manager Mickey Williard. The High Toms are one of the most talented teams playing summer ball this summer. We ranked them fourth on our list of, of top 25 teams in terms of talent. Uh, they've got you know, some, some big-time players like Ryan Cusick from Wake Forest, Ethan Murray from Duke, Zach Geloff from Virginia, just a lot of uh, you know, players primarily in the footprint because, as we've mentioned here several times, players are, are staying a little more local, and so they were able to really tap into – a lot of the, the schools around the, the High Point area in North Carolina, obviously North Carolina is uh, very rich in, in terms of uh, number of colleges uh, playing baseball and, and just the baseball programs in the state. So they were able to attract a lot of that talent, keep a lot of that talent local, and as a result have, uh, have the most talented roster in the Coastal Plain League. So with that, let's get to, uh, let's get to Mickey Williard and, and hear about how, he, uh, how he's managing uh, a unique summer and actually his first summer with the High Toms. Today, we're very excited to welcome High Point uh, High Toms, High Point Thomasville High Toms coach. There's a lot there. Uh, Mickey <laughs> Willard to the podcast. Uh, coach, it's uh, it, you know, it's it's a good time to be talking in summer baseball, and, and you guys uh, you guys are, are having a good time playing it, from from what I understand. Well, the first off, thank you for having me on. Uh, we are, you know, I think the guys are definitely uh, taking advantage of this opportunity because not many guys have it this summer, and we're having a lot of fun. So this is your first summer as uh, as a manager at high uh, of the high toms, certainly this has not gone the way you accept, expected when uh, when you got appointed as manager. How have you had to adjust? Like what kinds of things have you had to adjust uh, throughout the year to, uh, you know, from what your expectations were to what the reality is now? I think the biggest thing is I think we're on our like 13th or 14th schedule since I took the job just from, you know, this team's not going to play now. So let's fill the dates here. Um, and obviously with the shutdown of several leagues, the roster is a lot different than it was in January. Um, and trying to make those pieces fit together and take care of as many programs, uh, especially local programs as we could to fill up our spots. That's been the challenge is just kind of jumping through all the paperwork hoops and getting uh, these guys on the field. Once we go through all our protocols on a daily basis to make sure we're allowed to do that. I'm curious if you, I mean, that's kind of a, a, a segue there. I'm curious if you could take us through kind of some of what that has been like in terms of 
not just the beginning of figuring out like, okay, is this season actually going to go, but just kind of the day to day process of making sure that everyone's safe and you guys are following those protocols and what all that entails. Yeah, absolutely. We are trying our best to stress staying within our bubble. Um, you know, we we're lucky that we're centrally located in North Carolina and a lot of talent is within driving distance of us from, you know, their houses, uh, you know, they may be at different schools, but they were recruited out of this area, which helped us keep our host families kind of to a minimum. Um, and also, you know, we're asking the guys to hang out with each other. And thankfully, we're playing six, seven times a week. And so there's not much else for them to do but show up at the ballpark. But when they do, before anyone reported, they had to have a negative test um, and send in that confirmation. And then after they report, we send out a quiz on a daily basis that's just kind of your three big questions that the health department gave to us. So, you know, have you been around anybody? You know, have you exhibited any of these symptoms? And as long as they check off no on all of them, then they're allowed to enter the locker room. And at that point, they get their temperature taken um, just so we kind of have a running daily tally of where guys sit. And in the event, it hasn't happened, but in the event that someone did have symptoms or was around someone who had symptoms, they just they have to stay home until we get confirmation that that person was not at risk. Um, and then they can return to play. And we, it's a weird summer with the locker room because we try and cycle guys through there as best we can and keep from having the whole team congregated. Um, everything gets easier as soon as we get to BP and we can space guys out and we're outside and, you know, it's 95 degrees and we can get a little closer to normal baseball. Um, but definitely until the first pitch is thrown, there are some oddities that I'm not used to. You mentioned that the roster changed several times and some of that is picking up players that, um, you know, might've been ticketed for the Cape or, uh, or elsewhere, and, and so you have uh, what, what amounts to a very talented roster. What was that process like? How involved were you in, in that end of it? And, and what was it like just as you saw some of these uh, these bigger players uh, opting to come play for, for the high toms? Uh, the best part about it is that um, we had kind of uh, not set too much in stone uh, early in the year. We had kind of had our guys we were keeping an eye on but hadn't signed a bunch of contracts and so we had spots available when all this went down and when the valley league was the first one to shut down I, I texted my boss two seconds later after i saw the tweet and said i think this might be a trend we need to start setting ourselves up to be ready to pick these guys up and see what kind of roster we can really put together and then next thing i know uh, my really good friend joey hammond at wake forest calls me and he says look man i think we're about to have three really big ones for you um, so just have your phone on tomorrow morning. You're probably going to hear from Coach Walter and see if you can make space because you're crazy if you don't. And that was the, kind of the first trickle effect. You know, we picked up Cusick and Smith and Turconi, and then next thing you know, they're talking to their buddies and saying, hey, there's this place in High Point that's got some roster spots, and I think they'd like uh, to play with their friends. And next thing I know, we got 13 or 14 guys that found their way onto our roster. So it was really just – relationship things you know um greg starbuck at uncg is a good friend i coached his son when he was a freshman and sophomore in high school and 
throughout this game. As long as you, you treat people well and you maintain those phone numbers and relationships, you never know when it's going to come back to help you out. And it definitely did this summer for me. You mentioned some of the individual players there, and we definitely want to dive into those a little bit but here in just a second. Uh, but first of all, I actually wanted to ask you, this is not your first experience in the Coastal Plain League. You yourself played in the Coastal Plain League. I'm curious if you could kind of give us a, a feeling on how it is a little bit different now than it was when you played, what your summer ball experience like, what you still remember about summer ball, and what these guys are going to take from this experience beyond, of course, it being just a weird year, but just an average summer ball, <laughs> an average summer ball season, what those kinds of things mean moving forward, whether they go on to careers in baseball or not. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, obviously one of the things I'm most curious about is, you know, there's that proposal out there for a uh, kind of revamped college baseball season that uh, obviously has a lot of positives and what that necessarily would mean for summer ball. Um, but as far as my experience, one, I'm not even close to as talented as one guy that we have on this roster. So the the nightly bullpens that we're seeing in this league, whether it be from the reduced amount of teams or just the talent influx, uh, I don't know that the Coastal Plain League as a whole has seen this kind of depth. Um, there were always, you know, your top guys, and the, the league's had an incredible history as far as draft picks and things like that. But um, I think that when we look back five, six years from now, you're going to see just a – plethora of guys off of all of the teams that have been able to put together a summer it, it may be the biggest total that the league has had as far as guys who get picked up and play professionally well, one of the leading guys with that is uh, is ryan cusick um, a right-hander from from wake forest he's the the reports on him already this summer have been impressive just what he's been able to do on the mound what what have you seen from him from your vantage point uh, I, I love Ryan. He is incredibly competitive, and that's not something that you're going to necessarily see on a, a scout report. Obviously, everybody comes to see him light up the radar gun, and uh, you know he's holding his mid-90s fastball deep into games. He's pitched into the fifth for us his last two times out. Um, but the, the thing I'm most impressed with is uh, he had two goals this summer, and one was just to increase his fastball command. Um, in his last two starts, he's kind of been able to pitch to whichever side of the plate he wanted to. And uh, it's, you know, the biggest piece kind of for his professional outlook is to develop his slider into a more consistent pitch. Um, it's got some some ability. It's been in a little bit, but his last outing, he really, he bared down and being able to throw it when he wanted to for a strike. Um, and if he can keep on that progression, uh, there's no reason that, you're not going to see this guy in the first round next year, I, I wouldn't imagine. It's just a matter of whether he propels himself towards the top of it or uh, falls falls later. One of his Wake teammates, Shane Smith, is a guy that I've seen this summer who I really liked. And you look at his numbers, and in a lot of ways, his numbers are, are right there with Cusick. And, and obviously, we understand why Cusick is where he is and, and Shane Smith is where he is. But, I mean, are we underselling the type of summer Shane Smith has had? What have you seen from him so far? What have you liked what he's done for you? Absolutely. Um, I think we're definitely underselling his ability because he came in and I, I was really aware that he's got a pro breaking ball. Um, but Wake uh, wants to or needs him to start on the weekend next year and transition kind of out of that bullpen role that he held for him this year. And so, you know, the two biggest jumps there, his ability to hold his fastball velocity 
and developing a changeup. And there's nobody who works harder at it. He's out there every day trying to get that third pitch consistent for him so that he can be a guy who throws for him on Saturday instead of late in the bullpen. Um, he is a natural born leader. Um, he, there's not, not much else that you can say about Shane other than that you know exactly what you're going to get every day. And last week is evidence of that. We got in some trouble early in the game and we had him available in the bullpen. Uh, we were down at Wilson and he came in and put up five zeros and gave us a chance to come back and win a game that we were down five to nothing in. On the position player side, Zach Geloff is a, is a guy that kind of stands out uh, to me when I look at the roster. I know you've moved him around a bit. Um, what, what do you think, uh, you know, what, what are you seeing from Zach and, and what does he bring to, to UVA next year and, and, and into the draft? You know, I Obviously, he's had a really strong start to his career at UVA, and there's a reason that everybody was kind of licking their chops for him to get down here and see him play. I think the most interesting thing about him is he's got a really impressive approach to the opposite field, and he's got the ability to drive the ball the opposite way. You know, he had a home run last week over our netting in right field, 106 off the bat. And I think when he gets into pro ball, uh, you know, may, maybe it happens at UVA next year, but definitely when he gets into pro ball and they teach him how to pull a few more of those pitches that he really should get out on, he's going to be a dangerous hitter because he's already got the other side of the plate under control. So a quick scroll of the uh, stat sheet illuminates that uh, Hogan Windish from UNCG <laughs> is hitting 491. And, you know, it's a small sample size, I get it, but nobody hits 491 through 15 games by accident. And, and I've seen him, and the, the guy can just really hit. Like, I love watching him hit. But what's gone right for him so far this summer? You know, when he first got here, he uh, – and I, I talked to Coach Starbuck about this. We got on the phone the first day because the first thing that stands out is Hogan has pro bat speed. He's got the ability to really whip his hands through the zone. He's strong. He's, he's built like an ox. But – his direction was not very clean. Uh, um, you know, he wasn't getting his hands through the middle of the field. His, his body was kind of getting in his way. And so we hammered that out the first couple of days, tried to get him to understand that he's got enough bat speed to kind of sit on right center and you know, let, let the home runs to the pull side be accidents. And ever since then, he has been locked in. Um, if you haven't seen his BP, it's impressive. And uh, once he gets into the game, he just – it's one of those guys that it feels like every time he gets into a battle with a pitcher, that guy is just waiting for the mistake to happen, and, and Hogan punishes it. He's uh, Obviously, he's got a 15-game hitting streak, um, which doesn't happen by accident. But the real question for him, and you know, I've put him in some tough spots. I've moved him around quite a bit. It's just kind of where does he settle position-wise at the pro level because I think the bat's going to carry him there. But He's played some second for UNCG, probably going to play some third for him next year. He's played a lot of outfield for me this summer. Um, just a matter of kind of where his athleticism fits best. But uh, he, he's my sleeper. I, th I think he's got a chance to really hit at the next level. Well, I was, uh, I was about to ask you about who, who your sleepers were. Because, uh, you know, I mean, you, you look at this roster, you see Cusick, you see, you know, Ethan Murray, Meredith, uh, Geloff. I mean, there are some names here, but – you know, who are some other guys maybe that are, are flying a little under the radar if you're just surface level looking at, at the roster and seeing some of those big, big names? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, from just a pure stuff scenario on the pitching side, Alex Hoppy has a, has a pro arm. Um, he's been 93 to 96 for us 
uh, he's just been inconsistent. You know, it, it, some days the slider's been there, some days it hasn't been. And uh, if he can kind of get going and get his delivery to be a little bit more consistent where his arm catches up, that guy has the chance to take off. Um, I know it's not comfortable with his arm side run. Face that. Um, Josh Siles from Towson is another guy, you know, especially yesterday he pitched really well for us and he honestly he wasn't very good with first pitch strikes and there were a lot of guys in really good hitters counts that took some some weak swings against him because he just he throws a really heavy 92 to 94 mile hour fastball just a little bowling ball that looks really good halfway there and then kind of disappears off the barrel um you know we've got some young guys um Carson Wisenhunt from ECU has thrown the ball well for us. Uh, obviously, he got bit yesterday just a little bit, but 6'4", 6'5", left-handed pitcher, um, up to 90. He is a freshman who hasn't really pitched a lot for them. Interested to see where he takes off. And then on the offensive side, um, you know, Eric Grintz from Carolina, uh, catcher. He's uh, He's got some strides to take offensively just to get more consistent, but uh, he's very professional in his approach. He uh, has a really good understanding of the strike zone already, and uh, he can handle a game behind the plate. Obviously, evidence he was he was playing fairly often as a freshman for them. But if I got to pick one offensively, uh, I have to go with Turconi from Wake Forest. He is uh, not going to be anybody's scout. You know, he's not going to put up a bunch of 60s. He's not going to put up a bunch of pro grades um, on your 20 to 80 scale, but I think he's going to have a lot of fifties. He just is a barrel magnet. It's really hard to get the guy out. And I think he can fall out of bed and hit. And I think when he gets to the professional level and the velocities are increased on the daily night, you're going to see a little bit more power come through. Um, probably good enough to stick at second base at the next level as well. One last guy I wanted to ask you about specifically is, is like, is Kier Meredith, who, you know, yep. is just electric, you know, he, he can just, the, the, the tools are very present. Um, he, you know, he struggled a little bit to put it all together at Clemson, looked like he was maybe doing that in 2020. And of course, you know, that we saw how that ended just because of the pandemic, but he's shown flashes again this summer. What do you feel like are the keys for him to be able to parlay that into going back to campus and being able to finally put it all together in 2021? Um, you know, I think, if Kier stays exactly who he is right now and he's healthy, he's going to have a really good college career because he can own the opposite side of the plate. He obviously runs at an elite level and is going to put pressure on defenses. He's going to beat out more infield singles than the average guy. I mean, I think one night uh, in Martinsville, he ran like a 3-8 down the line um, on a bunt. I mean, he, he is incredibly toolsy. And if you want a true center fielder who can just float to baseballs, He's the guy, but for him to really take the next step professionally, he's just got to get better at pulling the ball. Um, it's something he's working on. We've been spending a lot of time on it this summer in BP where we can kind of isolate it and just not letting a guy get in on him and uh, take that side of the plate away. If he can do that and have a couple surprises where he sneaks a fastball out, uh, it's not going to be hard for him to uh, control barrel but I'm interested to see if next year full year at Clemson he can kind of put all that together and still have a small ball game and uh, obviously a defensive weapon this is uh, for you a return home uh, you know and you mentioned a lot of your players are, are from the area you are as well just w what's it like 
to be back, you know, managing a, a team in, uh, in, in your hometown? It's great. I, uh, I used to go to these games as a kid all the time. And uh, it's, it's nice to have my family close by. You know, I'm able to call them after the game, tell them all about it. They're able to watch the live stream if they don't come out. Uh, so just, just the chance to kind of be around the people while all of this is going on that mean the most to you. Um, do something in your hometown where you know you, you get maybe a few more texts after the game or you know I saw the high times one. Um, it, it's a cool feeling, and you know after being in Maryland for a couple of years, it's nice to just kind of be back around everybody that uh, grew up supporting me and are now supporting me in this job. Absolutely. Well, hopefully uh, the rest of the summer goes uh, goes well for you guys, and everyone's able to stay safe and. You guys can keep uh, piling up some of those wins, uh, you know, and we're uh, we're going to be watching to see how uh, how the high times finish up the season. I appreciate it, guys. Thank you very much. Thank you again to High Toms manager Mickey Willard uh, for coming here on the Baseball America College podcast. Joe, you have actually been out to to see High Point a few times this summer. Uh, when you've been able to do that, what kind of has has stuck out to you? about the high toms and uh you know baseball in the coastal plain leagues this summer yeah well he alluded to it i mean there's some guys out here that and i say this with all respect to the coastal plain league and the high toms i mean they've got guys who should not be there you know cusick you know geloff uh you know even a guy like rudy maxwell at duke who's caught for them and it's, it's been a really nice job behind the plate i mean those are guys that would have been in higher profile leagues um, you know, most of the guys that we've named off and most of the guys who, who made it a, uh, you know, the, the, the fourth most talented roster in, in, in summer ball, according to our, our rankings there, uh, all those guys would, would most likely be off doing something else with their summer, whether that's Team USA in some cases, if things have gone really well, or the Cape, or what have you. Uh, instead, they're, they're here. So, I mean, the, the talent really does jump off the page. Um, and, and when you're there, you can really see it and shine through. I mean, I've been there at some games where they were just head and shoulders above the competition. And some of that is they're also playing, as you can imagine, a little bit of an altered schedule. The Coastal Plain League is doing pods. Essentially, they've got a Southern pod with the teams in, in Georgia, who you may know is the Savannah Bananas and Macon Bacon, um, you know, with, with the teams in South Carolina, and then they've got a North Carolina-Virginia pod. So they're only playing those North Carolina-Virginia teams. So they're, they're supplementing the schedule with teams from other local leagues and things like that. So sometimes there is just like a, an almost cartoonish discrepancy there. But the other thing I notice about them just, on a, just on, from a team perspective, which is not really the focus with summer ball, I get it. Now these guys want to win. The coaches want to win. I guarantee you Mickey Willard wants to win a, a championship to the extent – Coastal Plain is doing any sort of championship. I'm not really sure exactly <laughs> what the plan is there, but they want to win games. I get it. But that's not really for you and I and, and for the, these players. It's all about development. But I will say when I've gone out and seen them, whether it's at home or on the road, I've seen them both in both places. There, there isn't a lot of kind of like the summer ball hijinks. Like these guys are all taking this very seriously. It appears. And, and you see guys cutting up and having a good time. It's not like this is, you know, that they're taking it overly seriously because it is just summer ball, let's be honest. But um, it, it's a focused team, and they are a pretty well-oiled machine as a team. Um, and, and it's no surprise, not just from the talent, but also for, from the perspective of them playing as a team that they've been so so successful. Um, and, and the, the I mean, the depth is really good, too. We talked about a couple of the guys, but you've got the headline names, but then you've got some other guys who have impressed. Like, I like Hogan Windish, who if you – 
if you're really paying attention, if you're from this area, maybe um, he's a, he's a name you might've known, but he's at UNC Greensboro. He's not at Duke or Wake or UNC or Virginia, what have you. And he just had an outstanding summer. And it's kind of nice to hear that the tools and what he's become kind of matches up with the stats he's putting up. And it's, it's an opportunity for a player like him. Maybe he was one of the players and we don't know what the breakdown is, but maybe he was one of the players who was going to play for the high toms regardless. And then you're in a scenario where, okay, Ethan Murray's going to play here now and Michael Turconi's going to play here now. And Zach Geloff is going to play here. And, and th- those are all infielders. And, you know, for a player like him, it's easy to kind of maybe get lost in the shuffle a little bit. He's actually gone the other way where playing with these high level teammates he's had an outstanding summer and he's probably made himself a little bit of money. He's probably earned himself some, some notoriety. Um, you know, I saw UNC Greensboro in the spring and I was aware of his name, but he was not a guy in my, my two game stint out there that I really made it, made a note of. So it shows you that he's really made the most of his, um, most of his time there. So I've, I've really enjoyed watching the team play. Like I said, it's, it's, it's a, sometimes summer ball, I'll put it this way. Sometimes summer ball can seem a little showcase ish where, you know, you've got these, uh, you know, uh, this pitcher's going to go three innings and he's really letting it loose. And this pitcher comes in and you can tell he's really working on his breaking ball because it's like just a breaking ball after breaking ball after breaking ball. And then, you know, the hitters are all kind of taking these hacks that, you know, um, aren't necessarily in-game hacks. Um, This has not been like that. Um, They've been enjoyable games. They play a fun brand of baseball. I mean, when you have Keir Meredith running around the bases and running out doubles in 8.2 seconds and getting down the line, according to, to Willard in less than four seconds. I mean, that, that kind of stuff is, is fun to watch. And they've provided that in addition to really giving you a look at a lot of guys who are going to be on both scouting and just college baseball radars going into 2021. Yeah. And you've been able to see Cusick uh, who, you know, like you just heard it's a potential first round pick next year. Uh, the latest Wake Forest pitcher, we saw Jared Schuster go in the first round this year, and you know they they have become pretty adept at developing pitchers, and that they have the uh, you know the the big pitching lab there um, in Winston Salem. So Cusick kind of tapped as as the next one. What he, he has a big time arm, ninety six. I believe is what he's been up to this summer. What, uh, you know, what, what else are, are people saying about Cusick that, you know, has, sh- should give Deeks fans reason to be excited and, and, you know, people as they start looking at next year's draft class reasons to be excited. Yeah. He's pitching with intent, I think is a, is a big part of it. Like part of the, the development of going from being an arm to being a pitcher is kind of the intent and not just going up there and trying to spray fastballs and, and throw them past people. He is still, by the way, throwing fastballs past people. The difference is now is that he's putting it where he wants it. He'll occasionally, the first time I saw him, which was his first start of the summer, I believe. Yes. Um, it came and went a little bit in the first couple innings, but Hey, he'd been on the shelf in terms of competitive games for a long time at that point. Um, so the, the fastball, it took some time there in that first outing, but since then he's, he's putting the ball where he wants, which is not to say he's just throwing middle, middle fastballs. You know, he's missing, he's missing with intent. He's hitting his spots. He goes up there. It appears he's pitching with a plan. Um, not to mention just the control piece. He's not walking a lot of guys and walks have been an issue with him. So there's a lot that goes into that. It's not just not walking people. It's also, are your misses with intent? Um, he seems to be doing that as well. He's elevating when he should be elevating. He's mixing with his breaking ball. And he's also shown uh, a breaking ball as a weapon, um, which, you know, I've seen him land it for strikes. I've seen him bury it a little bit. Um, I 
so I'm certainly not an evaluator, um, so I will never um, portend to be that. Um, the other piece of it is that I had not seen him live um, in the 2020 season, or obviously I lived in the Midwest for the 2019 season, so I didn't see him live there either. But So I didn't have a familiarity with his breaking ball before. I knew him as a, as a fastball guy. I knew him as a big arm. Um, but to me, he's shown an ability to, to use that breaking ball um, as a weapon. I haven't seen much in terms of changeup. I think literally in the two starts I've seen, I've seen one changeup, and there was actually some question as to whether it was actually a changeup, as opposed to maybe something that got away from him a little bit, or a misread on, or, on a radar gun. All that kind of stuff is in play, I suppose. But um, So I haven't seen that, but I have seen the breaking ball that, that I think could be a real weapon for him. Um, I like it most when it's landed for a strike. I mean, that's when I've noticed it most and looks sharpest when he's able to kind of, you know, put it on the, on the back door to a left-handed hitter, for example. Um, so to my eyes, again, to my, to my relatively amateur eyes in terms of seeing pitchers develop, you know, I see a fully formed pitcher and a pitcher who, or something nearing a fully formed pitcher who's not just out there throwing, who's not just out there trying to show off for scouts and to light up some radar guns. He's trying to figure out the pitching piece of it. And given what he's accomplished, again, against varying levels of competition in this league, um, he's gone out there and had success uh, showing that he can be that and can have success that level. Yeah, so it's going to be interesting to see how he develops uh, big-time talent, big-time upside, um, where that exactly fits in next year's draft. You know, we'll have to wait and see how things play out. There are a lot of guys right now um, that have – there are a lot of exciting college pitchers. He is 100% one of them. Uh, but this this college pitching class has a chance to be really special. And so I'm just going to be very interested to see how that all comes together over the next 11 months or so before the uh, before the 2021 draft. So uh, something to watch for, for Wake Forest fans, for sure, and, and for everyone uh, that, that's looking at next year's draft class. We, um, you know, we, we mentioned at, at the top of the show about you know, the return of big league baseball with the return of big league baseball or preceding the return of big league baseball, they, they had summer camps and uh, there were, you know, the, the teams in addition to holding them at their home parks had a secondary site um, where they had, you know, other players in an effort to help with social distancing because they were bringing in up to 60 players. That, that's more than, you know, the one park can handle. So they all had, had a second site and five teams, five college, or five pro teams, MLB teams used local colleges. Four of them were at the division one level, uh, Denver or uh, Colorado, excuse me, used uh, metropolitan state, which is, uh, I will admit something that I didn't know really existed before uh, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, but so four, four division one colleges were used the Angels were at Long Beach. The Dodgers uh, were and are, I guess, still for the their taxi squad right now at USC. The Red Sox were at Boston College. And the Astros were at the University of Houston. And I wrote about the Red Sox coming to BC, uh, which is highly significant, or, or it, it's a significant development in BC's program because... Up until a few years ago when BC opened 
their new field, Pellegrini Diamond, Pellegrini Field, excuse me. Um, they played at a stadium that doubled as a tailgating lot on football weekends in the fall. And they, they had the worst facilities in the ACC, arguably the worst facilities of any Power 5 school. Uh, and, you know, that's no longer the case. And while, you know, they've been in their new field for a couple of years, they opened it in 2018. Um, you know, so BC has been reaping those benefits, but the Red Sox noticing that and kind of broadcasting that to a larger audience by choosing it as their summer camp alternate site, um, you know, that's a real feather in the cap for BC now. They can use that in recruiting. And, you know, it, it's also just a nice indicator of how far they've come as a program, uh, you know, especially in the last five years, five to 10 years. Mike Gambino has been the coach there for 10 years. And, you know, it's, it's been a build, but they are the, not, the facility is going to, they, they've had the new field. Their indoor facility is, was supposed to be finished uh, on August 1st. The pandemic has delayed that into the fall. But once the Pete Freights uh, Center opens this fall, you know, there's really going to be no question that BC has the best facilities in the Northeast. And so to go from literally playing on a parking lot to the best facilities in the Northeast and, and you know, competitive facilities within the ACC. Uh, I mean, it, it's really a remarkable turnaround, uh, you know, for for the Eagles. And it, I think it was really cool for the program to to have that recognized by the Red Sox. Oh yeah, I mean, it's it's a huge deal. Um, and I, all of all of what you said about BC is is right on the money. There's a a conversation that happens, um, you know, sometimes when you're, when you're talking to other people who who do this job, whether it's nationally or, or locally. And one of the conversations you start to have during, during rain delays or between games, if you're in a tournament setting or what have you is, is kind of, what are your favorite stadiums? Um, you know, where, where do you like to cover games? It's a pretty common conversation. And sometimes, you know, you'll get asked the, the conversation will turn to the opposite end. Like who, you know, who's, you know, whose facilities were, were lacking, you know, where, where are they, who, who's behind a little bit. And, and the conversation would all, you know, inevitably in conversations with people who've been around this game a long time, whenever we talk about that side of it, the question would come up, have you been to BC? Uh, because you're right. I mean, it was uh, hard to imagine a team being further behind in terms of facilities at the power five level than what BC was, was working with. So this is a, a huge thing for a program that in spite of that was still managing to have success. And the team was in a super regional, not that long ago. Um, you know, famously was in the regional in 09 because that was when they, you know, they and, and Texas played a game that went on for, I don't know, six or seven months. So um, a team that was kind of in spite of that, able to have some success here and there, which I think was uh, a testament to the coaches who have been there and what they had uh, had built. I, you know, that you mentioned the Astros, the University of Houston, and I think that's a great opportunity for U of H just because that's a, a relatively new, their, their player development center is a relatively new building. They're really, really proud of that thing as they, as they should be. Um, you know, as you know, you have a little more visibility to that than, than I have actually, even though I'm, but you know, I had moved by the time that thing was, was done. So I, I haven't seen it with my own eyes, but I think that's the type of thing where those players who 
in the Astros organization, work out a little bit at U of H, they get some visibility to that, those facilities. That's the type of relationship building that I think can matter for players who didn't play at the University of Houston, may have never gone to the university, like, may have never stepped foot on campus, except for now, they've seen what that school has to offer. That seems to me like the type of thing that might continue to pay dividends later down the road. A couple of these guys get to the big leagues. They're looking for a place to work out. Um, they know U of H has this. U of H offers them the opportunity to come and use their facilities if they need it. Um, those types of this type of opportunity, I think, can lead to things like that, which is which is only good for these college programs. Now, normally, you see that kind of stuff, you know, famously at a place like Vanderbilt. Their players come back all the time and, and work out there. Um, this happens all over the country, but it would be kind of a unique thing if players who didn't go there, who just happen to be tied to the city now. Um, you know, were to come back to a place like that to work out because they got some visibility to what's on offer. And that's not going to be the case at, at all of all the places these summer camps are happening. But a place like Houston that has those types of facilities, um, I think there is a little bit of an opportunity there. Yeah, I think it's really significant for everyone that got selected as a, as a summer camp site. Uh, but, you know, USC and Long Beach – people know what Dado Field and Blair Field are about. You know, those are two historic diamonds. Um, you know, Blair has seen some upgrades in recent years when they changed the dimensions and they built the new hitting facility, the very spacious hitting facility out there. Uh, you know, so it, it's a feather in the cap for those two schools, for sure. But Houston just invested a ton of money in this indoor facility I got to walk through it this year before the uh, the Shriners College Classic when I was in Houston, and you know it's amazing. It looks really, really good. They have you know everything they need. It's just down, you know the the third baseline, and um, you know you, you heard some good things from Astros people coming out of that about you know what what they had there at U of H. And so I think that's really significant. And obviously, like I said, it's hugely significant for BC given where they came from. I, th I think really for those two programs, getting to say that the local MLB team was, you know, endorsed these facilities and, and specific things that they said, you know, I know Dusty Baker was able to go over there and, and, and talked about, you know, what was happening at U of H and although he seemed pretty excited about seeing the basketball facility as well. Uh, so maybe the basketball team can use some of that in recruiting, but you know, they, they, the, the visibility that they got, um, you know, and, and that like you, like you mentioned, you know, some of these guys may, you know, look to return and you know, what that can do, um, you know, the, the continued dividends that that can pay, I, I think is, is pretty significant as, um, you know, summer camps are, are now wrapped up, uh, but but that's something that that for these college programs, I, I I think that has lasting impact. Yeah, no, I I would agree, and you know, I I think um, you know, it's it, the stars kind of have to align a little bit, and I think that that's why I bring up University of Houston is just because it, it just so happens, and it's probably not an accident that they were able to host that because of the facilities they provide. But um, but yeah, I think the stars have really aligned, at least in in that case to create a, a situation where they could continue to, uh, to benefit from that moving on down the line. Yeah. I mean, I, I would guess that's why U of H got that and not save rice. You know, I mean, that, that's sure. a city that has multiple uh, big colleges, 
division one colleges within its city limits. And, um, you know, I know Sugarland's like actually probably trying to play baseball right now in the independent league, but, uh, you know, that, that facility exists just outside of the city and there are other minor league facilities they could have gone to. And instead, you know, they went to U of H and I, I think that facility is a, is a big part of it. Or maybe somebody with the Astro, there's a, the golf team at Houston also uses it. And there's a, because of that, there's a, a big golf simulator in there and maybe someone with the Astros really just wanted to get on that, that golf simulator and saw this as a, as a good reason or a good way to uh, good me, uh, good, good way to get to that. <laughs> I mean, you want to talk about the sport at the university of Houston, by the way, that has the most clout, at least historically, you're talking about the university of Houston golf team. Uh, Jim Nance played there. Fred couples played there. Steve Elkington played there. A lot of history in that, in that golf programs. So that's not just like a throwaway there. I mean, that's, that Houston golf program is, is, is really, really something there. Um, I don't know to the extent to which that is still true. I just know historically there are a lot of really good golfers who have come through there and a lot of famous golfers who have come through there and it still has a lot of influence. So, so there is that, but uh, that would be a nice little perk. If you're a Astro staff member who wants to get a couple swings in and you don't have to, the other thing I know about Houston, though, plenty of golf courses. He certainly would, would have a chance there, but uh, yeah, indoors, not outside in the, uh, you know, 90 plus degree heat with 90% humidity. It's gotta be pretty nice. Absolutely. Well, Joe, you wrote a little bit about the Big East this week. First of all, in your stock watch as that series continues, and then about, um, you know, the way the Big East has changed this year. Well, changed over the last decade, and then UConn's return, uh, which became official this month. So, you know, this is a league that, you know, if you look in basketball, it's a power conference. If you look in baseball, it maybe used to be a power conference. You could certainly make that argument that there was a time that the Big East, uh, you know, was a major baseball conference. That time no longer exists, or that that time has passed, but it is one of the better mid-major leagues out there. And I honestly hate calling it a mid-major league because these brands are so big. You know, Villanova has, you know, the, the clout that it does from winning a couple basketball titles within the last few years, St. John's, Georgetown, um, you know, these are, these are big, big schools. And, you know, Creighton hosts the College World Series, technically. You know, TD Ameritrade is uh, Creighton's home park. So as, as these things go, like, this is a pretty significant baseball conference. And now with UConn coming in, and we talked about this a little bit before when, when UConn made that move official at the start of the month, but you know, the big East now becoming, um, or, or after some very confusing years, I guess, uh, in terms of who was in the big East and then the big East went through a little bit of a lean time as a baseball league, as it kind of adjusted to the new normal of, you know, you lost schools like Louisville and West Virginia and Pitt, and you know now Butler and Xavier and Creighton are trying to get to the Big East level. They've now kind of found a pretty solid equilibrium uh, that UConn has a chance to take them from, you know, just being a very strong one bid league that typically is getting a number three seed in the tournament as opposed to a four to potentially uh, an annual multi bid league. Yeah, it's a league that really was kind of put through the ringer there for a while. Uh, you know, the, anybody who's a college football fan probably remembers all the chaos that was Big East realignment from about 2010 to 2013. And 
it kind of got left on the cutting room floor of, of the article I was writing, but I just recounting some of that was just so unbelievable. I mean, you had stuff like, now this would not have affected baseball, but at one point, San Diego State and Boise State were set to join the Big East from football only members. Um, because I think what I compared it to in the original draft of the piece was that Big East, from a football standpoint, the Big East was the last open chair in a game of musical chairs, where at the time, you have to remember, schools were trying to get into leagues that had BCS automatic tie-ins, basically. You know, if you, if you won the championship of your league at a bare minimum, you'd be in whatever the, you know, the lowest tier BCS bowl game was at worst there. So that's how you end up with, you know, I think one year Pitt went to UConn. Yeah, right. UConn got in. That's right. Yeah, UConn football got into a BCS bowl. Pitt one year got in at like eight and four. Um, and there's, there was big money in that, obviously, regardless of how good you actually were. So um, they were, everybody was trying to, trying to get that last chair. And what ended up happening was as awkward as that thing when people try to sit in the same chair and they like end up trying to sit down like back to back on each other. Um, you know, TCU came into the league and left the league without having played a single game as a member of the Big East. I mean, it was that type of craziness. And I, I talked to St. John's coach, Mike Hampton, and he was like, yeah, it kind of was a little bit nuts there. And we just kind of eventually had to say, you know what, we'll, we'll, we'll have a schedule at some point and then we'll figure out who we're playing. You know, um, I'm paraphrasing there, but it just, that was the level of, of chaos of it. And he also admitted that after that, there was, there was kind of a period of trying to find itself as a league. Uh, but what it has settled on, to your point, is a league that, I, that is better than your typical mid-major, um, but, is, but is below, obviously, the power leagues, but also below, you know, the American, for example. Um, and historically would have been below Conference USA in the Sun Belt, but obviously that's a discussion for another day whether that's still true. Um, there's a debate to be had there, given the realignment that's happened in those leagues as well. Um, I think a couple things were important there. One is that St. John's just continued – to be incredibly consistent year over year. They really haven't suffered any sort of downturn over the last, you know, 20 plus years now. They just keep churning out winning teams year after year after year. The other thing was that the Big East really, whether you want to account just good timing, luck, or just really good foresight on the part of, of um, those who were in charge of realignment, the Big East, although I would tend to not give them too much credit there because let's be honest, these decisions on realignment were made based on basketball, the teams they were adding. But that being said, it really worked out well. They added Creighton and Xavier in particular because those two teams have immediately become two of the better teams in the league. You would have expected that with Creighton perhaps, not so much with Xavier, and their regular season record is just kind of okay. But when Scott Guggins, now the coach at Cincinnati, was there, he was really, really good at getting his teams to play their best baseball when it mattered. So they got to the postseason quite a bit. And, you know, Butler has gotten better. Uh, that was one thing every coach, you know, I've I, I talked to associated with the Big East has really pointed to is, like, Butler's, you know, uh, Dave Schrag is just a professional coach, like a really good coach. And um, so he's gotten them improved as well. So they, they really kind of knocked that part out of the park, so to speak, in terms of the, the teams they brought in because they've all added something to the league. So – uh, that has also helped a lot, and, and UConn will will help even more. I mean, you're adding a really an annual regional contender. Um, will that still be the case in this Big East versus the American? We'll have to see. But UConn certainly raises the quality of the league. They're bringing another good facility into the league. And from UConn's perspective, you know, maybe it does kind of ding them a little bit in terms of being able to put together an at-large quality RPI and at-large quality schedule. Um, but I think ultimately, and Jim Pinders said this, like ultimately this is the best thing for the university. It's the best thing for the athletic department as a whole. And so therefore it's the best thing for baseball. And I think 
some of that is just him seeing the big picture of, hey, if, if, if we're not in a healthy athletic department doing operating at its best, like we're obviously not going to, you know, be able to take care of our own as, as well as we need to. But I also think he's looking at it from like, yes, there might be some negatives. And he admitted like, hey, the American is, is a better league right now. Um, but I think he's also seeing it from the standpoint of this is a better fit for us. This is a better recruiting fit for us. This is a better fit in terms of travel. It just makes a lot of sense for us to be in this league, even if maybe, okay, for a while, it might hurt us just from some of those, the standpoint of those metrics, at least initially. Yeah, I, w- I would agree with that. Um, you know, UConn definitely benefited from being in the American, but I also think the Penders laid it out pretty well for you how they're going to benefit from being in the Big East. And I, I think those benefits are are real. And I also do think there's a lot to his argument um, that, you know, what's best for the school, what's best for the athletic department, you can draw a pretty straight line to then it being best for the baseball program. Um, that, you know, if the, if the, the basketball program is able to get back to a place where they're winning national titles, um, you know, that has a lot of currency in terms of both literal currency and, you know, brand recognition and, and guys wanting to be a part of the Yukon Huskies and whatever uh, sport that they play. And, you know, so baseball would be able to see a, a pretty, you know, it, it's easy to see how that would benefit baseball. But I'm more interested in the idea of the Big East as a two-bid league. I shouldn't say I'm more interested. I'm interested in the idea of can the Big East get to be a consistent two-bid conference? Because that's something that is not easily done. I know when um, Coastal Carolina joined the Sun Belt, I expected the Sun Belt to essentially immediately become a, a two-bid conference year in and year out, and it has not done that. Um, you know, it, it really has, uh, you know, been a little disappointing, frankly, that they haven't been able to to figure out as a conference how to consistently put two teams into regionals. And so, if the Sun Belt is struggling to do that you know, with a team that won the national championship within the last five years uh, and with the advantages of being in the South and big baseball brands like Coastal, like ULL, um, you know, and, and Texas State, um, how easy is it going to be for the Big East to pull that off? And, I, you know, St. John's and Creighton especially have done really great jobs building strong RPIs, as a member of the Big East, so UConn should still be able to do it, um, and it should lift all ties and all the rest of that. But again, I mean, if the Sun Belt has struggled at this, and maybe really I need to just analyze what's gone wrong in the Sun Belt. Maybe that's the the, the rub here. Maybe it's not why what haven't how how can the Big East get to a level that the Sun Belt isn't? Maybe the Sun Belt is being weighed down by something. But you know, that's that's something that I'm looking at. Uh, very interested in over the next five to 10 years is, is the Big East a consistent multi-bid league going forward? Or is UConn now, um, you know, more like Creighton in St. John's? Yeah, I, that, that's interesting to me as well. So I think it starts with, 
UConn being a team that continues to be in the mix every year because St. John's is mostly there. They occasionally have a year where they're just not really in the mix, but for the most part, they're mostly there. Creighton was there in 19, but I had actually kind of forgotten until I did the Big E stock watch. They had had a pretty decent amount of success in terms of winning games in the Big East conference itself. They had not necessarily done so in terms of putting together gaudy overall records or putting together really at-large resumes. It had been a while since they had put together like a, yes, this is an at-large team, like, you know, no, no questions about it. So I think that the first step is somebody, and UConn I think is in the best position to do this, being that team year in and year out. Because I think it, it, it starts with that, because right now I went back to, to last year from an RPI standpoint, and you've got Creighton at 20. And then this actually last year was one of the years where St. John's just really wasn't in the mix. They were 113 in RPI. But then you got Xavier at 66. So um, not really in the mix. They probably would have to be 20 spots higher to really be in the mix there. Um, but I think if you have a UConn team that is every year kind of – now they have to work harder for it. But Jim Pinders, I think, is a smart scheduler. He hasn't really had to put the pedal to the metal much in terms of scheduling because he's been playing in the American. I presume that's why that's been the case. Um, but but he, he's a guy who understands what you need to do to put together an at-large resume. He's had to think about that a lot. So I'm confident they're going to put a schedule together that would put them in position to do that. So – I think once you have that established, and this is, I think, the theory you had with Coastal, right, is like you start with that team that's like in the 30s or low 40s RPI-wise, okay, you're good there. Now all you need is really that second team to compete with that team kind of in the standings. And that's, that's kind of been the Missouri Valley Conference theory behind this, where it's like Dallas Baptist is there every year, bingo, Dallas Baptist is there. And if you assume they're going to go in, in 24 conference games, they're going to go 15 and 9 or 16 and 8. You just need that other team to be right there with them and kind of tailgate off them a little bit. Now, it takes a little more than that, but I think that's the beginning of how you start to put that together, is you start with the flagship team, and then you have that other team, whether it's St. John's or whether it's Creighton, that is able to kind of tailgate off it a little bit, win some games in conference, which the RPI will be buoyed by the addition of UConn, and then really lean on something like, hey, you know, we play a lot of road games because we're mostly located in the Northeast and use that to your advantage. And one thing I will say about the Big East in the past, and this is anecdotal as I kind of poked through the Big East, is that there, there are instances of programs putting up a lot of wins and putting up 35, 36 win seasons that weren't really in the at-large mix. And I think a lot of it is scheduling. And I get that it's hard scheduling in the Northeast, especially when you talk about midweek games. Like, I get that. Um, but there were a lot of instances of schedules that just really were not going to set up the team to be in an at-large position unless they really went crazy. Like I'm talking Tennessee Tech 2018 crazy. And so I think that's also a little area where the Big East can clean things up is in terms of creating schedules that set them up for success in that way. And I think that's one way in which UConn helps because they haven't had to do that. But Coach Penders is someone who has shown an ability to do that and understands the value of that. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, that that's one thing that the Big East does have going for it that the, the Sun Belt does not is the how much you're playing on the road. Um, you know, so definitely something to, to watch there. And if the Big East is going to become a multi-bid league, you know, who does that come at the expense of? And, and all the rest of that is, is something that, uh, again, I mean, there are a lot of permutations to this or not permutations, but there, there's a lot of fallout 
from this uh, this move, and it, it's going to be something that's going to be very interesting uh, to watch over the next few seasons. Obviously, this upcoming season with the Big East and um, the CAA uh, and, and the A10 kind of going to with a more regional uh, structure in the schedule. I don't know that we're going to see how it plays out immediately, but I do think over the next few seasons, we should be able to get a better feel for, for where, what kind of direction that's headed in. Um, so just something to, uh, to keep your eye on over, over that, that course of, of time. And uh, also just to uh, get used to the idea that, that UConn is, is back in the Big East. Yeah. I mean, that was uh, definitely, you know, when I, when I asked Coach Penders about in his initial reactions when he heard they were going back to the Big East, I mean, he immediately went to the nostalgia piece. And I don't blame him. Like, he's a guy who grew up in the Big East, like, you know, understood the pull of that conference. And as I've written before, and I just tweeted out the link to the story, like, UConn feels at home now, and the Big East feels a little more like the Big East. And just one more thing briefly before we wrap is that one of the things that he talked about was, like, yeah, it might hurt us. You would think it would hurt us in recruiting, you know, that we're leaving the American because we're leaving this conference that puts three, four teams into regionals every year and has these, these established college baseball brands. But I just spend a lot of time telling recruits who we actually played in the conference with. And I have a hard time believing he's going to have to explain to any recruit in their living room in Connecticut or New Jersey or wherever in the Northeast, what the big East is. Now it might be a little different than the big East, you know, those kids' parents in particular grew up with, but it's still the Big East, and that's a pretty powerful thing. Absolutely. I, and I, I can absolutely, uh, you know, see that the American is, you know, this brand new thing that has little connection to the Northeast, uh, now literally none, um, and whereas the Big East is is something that, that everyone is used to. And again, because those brands are so strong in basketball, um, you know, it definitely carries a lot of, a lot of clout, uh, just in the broader sports consciousness. With that, we are, uh, we're going to wrap this up for the week. We'll have, um, plenty more to talk about, uh, next week on the Baseball America College podcast. We are continuing, uh, with the weekly podcasts here through the summer, uh, as there, there continues to be plenty to talk about in the, the college baseball world from a from a week-to-week basis uh you know, we, we we keep finding ways to to run out long podcasts in weeks <laughs> joe and i sometimes are like ah maybe this will be a short one uh so if you're if you're into that you can subscribe to the baseball america college podcast on your favorite podcasting app apple podcast stitcher spotify wherever you're getting your podcasts please subscribe please rate please review if you can uh you can do those things it, it does uh really help us uh in the metrics you can follow us on Twitter. I am at Ted Cahill. Joe is at Joe Healy BA. And remember to check out all of the, the content over at baseballamerica.com a lot there, both in terms of college and uh, the rest of uh, the, the baseball world that we cover, especially as MOB gets back underway. We will be back here next week on the Baseball America College podcast, and we'll look forward to uh, talking with you guys then. I want to thank Mickey Willard from the High Toms for joining us this week. Thanks to Joe for joining me as always. And thanks to you guys for listening. We'll talk to you next week.
Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.